Welcome to Beyond the Character Sheet, a podcast about creating and playing fun characters for Dungeons & Dragons, from stats to table antics. Each episode, we'll talk through character sheets, item sets, and points of personality that can make your next adventure one to remember. Two, three, four, five. five. Okay. Thanks for tuning in, listener. I'm co-host Sean. I'm here with co-host TJ. Hello. And today we're going to be talking to you about TJ's idea for a Moonblade Elf. So TJ, why don't you go ahead and start us off here? Yeah, so first, a little bit about the Moonblade as an item. Uh, it is a legendary magic item uh, that requires attunement by an elf or half-elf of neutral good alignment. The important thing about it is it passes down from parent to child, and if no worthy heir is found uh, to claim the blade... It remains dormant and functions as a normal longsword until a worthy heir is found. So basically, I just want to make a character who has inherited a Moonblade, and it's still dormant. Now, in that description, you mentioned that the item requires attunement. I legitimately don't know what attunement really means. Can you can you explain to me what, what that is? Absolutely. Uh, some magic items require attunement. Uh, not all of them, but some of the more powerful ones do. And a, one character can only be attuned to three magic items at a time. So you can have several magic items, but if they require attunement, you can only be attuned to three. Can one magical item be attuned to multiple players? No. Okay, and then once a player is attuned to a magical item, what is, is it a uniform benefit across the board? Is it just a power boost, or do certain items have certain benefits that come with attunement? Uh, yes, yeah, certain items have certain benefits that come with it, and it's listed there in the item description of what you get for attuning to it. So what would be our benefits for the Moonblade specifically? So the cool thing about the Moonblade is it has several different runes, one for each previous wielder. So it starts out with 1d6 plus 1 runes active, and then for each rune, you roll a d100, and the table listed on the magic item description tells you what each rune does. Now, the first rune is always a plus one to attack and damage. And then the rest of them from there can be anything. So it functions kind of, as I've heard, a, a random magic table. Right. Okay, so there's kind of the background of the character and sort of where the idea came from, sort of laying it out. So let's start with the basics and talk about the character sheet, right? Everybody's got to have numbers on a piece of paper to describe who they are and how they work. How are we going to do this one? Yeah, so I think um, I actually rolled two versions of this character, or rather I rolled one and then I used standard array for another. So I always prefer standard array because I am new and I don't have a really great grasp of what all the different stats are really for. So is there a reason we would want to do a, a standard array over a rolled sheet or perhaps a rolled sheet over a standard array? Uh, yeah, so a standard array is simpler and you know what you're getting. Rolled, you have the chance to have some higher stats, and that gets you uh, the opportunity to build the character a little bit differently. I like rolling characters because you never know when you might be playing a barbarian who just randomly has that tertiary stat. 
they have a high charisma. And now you have this loud, boisterous barbarian that you're building. So I like I like that opportunity. It also allows you, in this case, to potentially do some cool multi-classing. So I'm guessing somebody who wields a long sword would, I'm going to assume, would be a fighter. Is that what we're going to build here? So with the standard array, I did build a fighter, and I built an Eldritch Knight fighter. Can you tell me what exactly an Eldritch Knight fighter is? Yeah, so the Eldritch Knight is a subclass of the fighter that uses magic as well as using weapons. Okay, so if we if we stick with the safe option of a standard array where we, we know what our numbers are going to be, we just pick what stats they go into, we might want to focus on a single class or perhaps a single subclass that works well with, in this case, our critical item. So let's say we flip that over and, like you say, we roll. And if we roll up our stats, we have the, the risk-return balance of, I might get a lot of good stats, and I might be able to play it a little more varied. So instead of having to stick to, say, this Eldritch Knight subclass build, what could a roll sheet give me? If you roll and you happen to get three stats that are above a 14, that gives you an opportunity to do something kind of cool that I did here, where I rolled a 14, a 15, and a 16, and I put the 16 into Intelligence, the 15 into Dexterity, and the 14 into Wisdom, and I started off as a monk, and then multiclassed later into wizard. And so a monk-wizard multiclass would, I presume, give you the same benefit of that Eldritch Knight of combat prowess and magic. Yes, but the monk and wizard multiclass gives you a much more dexterity-based build, whereas the fighter is more of a strength-based build. And here is actually a good place to talk about what it means to be single attribute dependent versus multi-attribute dependent. Sad versus mad. So single attribute dependent doesn't necessarily mean you only need one attribute because everybody needs constitution. However, it does mean that you really only need one to do the things that you're trying to do. And then multi-attribute dependent means you need two or more to be good, plus you need your constitution there keeping you alive. So... With the fighter build, we're kind of single attribute dependent. We care about strength and constitution and a little bit of intelligence, but not so much. And I'll explain why later. But with the monk wizard multiclass, we need that dexterity. We need the intelligence and we need the wisdom. Okay, so picking standard array or a rolled sheet is really going to depend on kind of how we want to play this character down the road. If we want that sad or mad standing. Exactly. So then if the standard array is what we're going to set up for our our safe kind of down the middle setup where we're only concerned about a single attribute, how, how does that character sheet look? So first of all, I want to clarify for anybody who might be new to the standard array. The standard array is 8, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, and you put those in any stats that you want. Now, I put our 15 in Strength, then I went with the 14 in Constitution, the 13 in Intelligence, the 12 in Dexterity, 10 Wisdom, and 8 Charisma. And I did those for kind of specific reasons. I ended up going with a Half Elf for this build. So with a Half Elf, you get a plus 2 to your Charisma, and a plus 1 to two other stats of your choice. So I ended up going with that, of course... 10 in charisma rather than 8 and then I took the plus 1 in intelligence to bring me up to a 14 and a plus 1 in strength to bring me up to a 16. So it sounds like even building for a single attribute dependent 
Eldritch Knight subclass, you're still kind of getting a, a stat sheet that looks almost like you rolled it. Right, right. And that's because of racial bonuses. Gotcha. Now, with the standard array build, I did go straight 20 levels into fighter, and I picked the Eldritch Knight subclass, as I mentioned before. So with the Eldritch Knight subclass, at level 3, we get the weapon bond feature. So we can bond with our weapon, and as long as we're bonded with it, we can't be disarmed of it. And as a bonus action, if it's not in our hand, we can call it to our hand, which I think is a really cool feature for a character who is based around this weapon that they have an heirloom weapon where they're it's in their interest to keep it with them at all times even if they can't necessarily cooperate with it yeah and then at fifth level as a fighter you get extra attack and at seventh level you get war magic which i think is a really cool feature and that is when you use your action to cast a cantrip you can then make a weapon attack using your bonus action and that opens us up for some really cool stuff like the Cantrip's Booming Blade and Green Flame Blade, which are melee attacks that do extra effect damage. And then, as a bonus action, you can make another follow-up attack. So I know that monks, at some point, will get the ability for multiple attacks. I was not aware that fighters could get that on their level path as well. So here's another option where sticking with a standard array, single attribute-dependent fighter might not necessarily give up too much benefit that you might get from, say, a monk build with a rolled-up character sheet. Yeah, and you get a little bit of added benefits because you can cast a spell and attack in the same turn, which is really only a feature of two subclasses, the Eldritch Knight and the Bladesinger Wizard, which we used in our rolled build, which we'll get to here in a second. Now, at level 10, as an Eldritch Knight, you get an ability called Eldritch Strike, and when you hit a creature with a weapon attack, that creature has disadvantage on the next saving throw it makes against a spell you cast before the end of your turn. Now, in my opinion, this is the weakest feature of the Eldritch Knight, and that's because, as an Eldritch Knight, since we're so focused on our strength and our constitution, what we're doing with our spells, we're picking a lot of spells that just buff us rather than hurt the enemy. So this ability is kind of cool to give them that disadvantage because you're not going to have that high of a spell save DC, but you're also not going to be picking a lot of spells that force a saving throw. So that actually sounds pretty useful. That's a fair bit more thought than I typically give a lot of my characters when I'm starting them out. Do we want to go over the roll sheet and maybe talk about some of the benefits of going that route? Yeah, absolutely. With the rolled build, what I ended up rolling was in order... A 14, a 12, a 13, 16, 11, and 15. So a really good roll, honestly. Listener, your mileage may vary. <laughs> so for strength, I went with the 12. For dexterity, I used the 15. For constitution, I used the 13. For intelligence, I used the 16. And for wisdom, I used the 14 and charisma, 11. And for this build, rather than going with the half-elf, I went with the high-elf. Now the high-elf gets a plus two to dexterity and a plus one to intelligence. So that brings our dexterity and intelligence both to 17. So then here, since we haven't gone with fighter, maybe we're relying on our dexterity to raise our armor class and make us a little harder to hit instead of uh, a high constitution that makes us harder to kill. Yes, exactly. And I will explain a little bit more on that uh, here in just a second. When we take our first level in Monk, we get a feature called Unarmored Defense. 
unarmored defense makes it so our armor class is 10 plus our dexterity plus our wisdom modifiers. So because we have that 17 in dexterity, we're getting a plus 3. And then for the wisdom, we're getting a plus 2 because we took a 14. So with that, we're starting out with a 15 AC, which is not the best, but it's perfectly acceptable for a first level monk. Now, once we take that second level in monk, what we unlock is our key, which we get two key points. We get a few ways to use our key. We get uh, unarmored movement, which increases our movement. But we also get an important feature that was introduced in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything called Dedicated Weapon. So Dedicated Weapon says, when you finish a short or long rest, you can touch one weapon, focus your key on it, and then count that weapon as a monk weapon until you use this feature again. The chosen weapon must meet these criteria. The weapon must be a simple or martial weapon, you must be proficient with it, and it must lack the heavy and special properties. Now as a high elf, we are proficient with longswords, so we can choose the longsword and then use that as a monk weapon. And what that means is we will be using dexterity instead of strength for our attacks and damage. I see it all starting to come together here. Yeah. So from that second level, normally I recommend not multi-classing until you hit level 5 in your main class. This is a little bit of a deviation from that because Monk isn't our main class. It's just our starting class. Wizard is going to be our main class. So from that second level, our third level as a character would be our first level as a wizard. And then once we take that second level in wizard, that's where we get the blade singing subclass. The blade bringing rub glass? <laughs> yeah. So with the blade singing subclass, we get a feature called the blade song, where you can use a bonus action to start your blade song, which lasts for one minute. It ends early if you're incapacitated, if you don medium or heavy armor or a shield, or if you use two hands to make an attack with a weapon. You can also dismiss the blade song at any time with no action required. While your blade song is active, you gain the following benefits. You gain a bonus to your AC equal to your intelligence modifier. Your walking speed increases by 10. You have advantage on dexterity acrobatics checks. You gain a bonus to any constitution saving throw you make to maintain your concentration on a spell. The bonus equals your intelligence modifier. And you can use that feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. And you regain all uses when you finish a long rest. So you can play an elf that just kind of whips around the battlefield, maybe getting uh, attacks of opportunity or flanking attacks in places where you normally wouldn't be able to. Right. And what's really cool is you get that added movement speed from being a monk. You get the added movement speed from being in a blade song. And your armor class is now 10 plus your dexterity plus your wisdom plus your intelligence. So with our current build, that would end up being a 19 armor class as long as your blade song is active. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And it gets even better because we have access to the shield spell, and shield is a reaction that increases your armor class by five for the remainder of the turn. And you can do that whenever you get attacked. But it wouldn't count as picking up a shield, which would cancel your blade song. Exactly. So later on, at level six as a blade singer, which would be character level eight because we multiclassed, we get a really cool feature, which is extra attack, which is what the fighter gets at level five. The blade singer gets at level six with a little added bonus to it. 
So their version of extra attack says you can attack twice instead of once whenever you take the attack action on your turn. Moreover, you can cast one of your cantrips in place of one of those attacks. So you could use a booming blade or a green flame blade and then follow it up with an attack just like the Eldritch Knight can. But where the Eldritch Knight has to use a bonus action to do that, you do not. And then the level 10 feature of the Bladesinger, which would technically be our level 12 as a character, is the Song of Defense. Now, the Song of Defense says when you take damage, you can use your reaction to expend one spell slot and reduce that damage by an amount equal to five times the spell's slot level. So even if you don't use a reaction for shield and you do take that damage, you can still expend a first level spell slot and negate five of that damage. Or you could spend a second level and negate 10 of that damage and so on. Okay, so I'm getting the picture in my head of a pretty nimble and really very, very dangerous kind of fighter or, or blade wielding monk out of these character sheets. So the other things that I would like to mention are feet options. Now, I would normally recommend just taking the ability score improvements until your main attribute is at 20. But one thing to keep in mind for the Eldritch Knight build is the Warcaster feat. The Warcaster feat is very important. It allows you to cast a spell as an attack of opportunity. So if someone leaves your range, rather than just hitting them with your weapon, you can cast a spell at them. It also gives you advantage on concentration checks to maintain concentration on your spells. And this build loves casting haste on themselves. So being able to maintain concentration on that is very, very important. And then for the Bladesinger build, there are some cool options such as the Fey Touched and Fey Teleportation feats. Now, Fey Teleportation gives you a free use of Misty Step once per short or long rest. And Fey Touched gives you a free use of Misty Step once per long rest. And that can be pretty cool because that means we don't have to pick Misty Step as one of our spells. We just get access to it through those feats. And it also means we get two free uses of Misty Step per day, one of them which resets on a short rest. So there's a look at how we could build the character on paper for a standard array if we just want to stick with the numbers that are generated for us or if we're feeling a little more adventurous, maybe we'll roll the numbers out and see if we can get lucky and get the stats that will give us something to make this uh, this monk build that is, as you've just described here, sounds pretty formidable. Sounds like someone who's going to be very difficult to hit, but who's very good at jumping around and dealing a lot of damage. So let's pop over and talk about some other key items that this build is going to need. So other than the Moonblade itself, the Belt of Giant Strength is always great for fighters. So if you are taking the Eldritch Knight path, any Belt of Giant Strength, even a Belt of Hill Giant Strength, would really free up your uh, ability score improvements so that you don't have to spend them increasing your strength. You can just have your strength magically increased. And likewise, you could take the Gauntlets of Ogre Power, which do a very similar thing. They bring your strength up to 19 or the headband of intellect which brings your intelligence up to 19. another option would be the ring of spell storing which lets you cast one of your spells into it and then use it without expending a spell slot later on 
So it seems like it might be wise to pick some items here that really lean into a lot of the magical bonuses that we talked about back on the character sheet side, where you're building a fighter who's really got a lot of movement and buff spells kind of in their back pocket. Yes, exactly. Some other cool options that I would recommend for pretty much any character build are a Ring of Protection or a Cloak of Protection. Both are fantastic. So with that item loadout, we are almost ready to put this character on the table and send them on their adventure. Why don't we pop over and talk about ways to kind of roleplay this character and talk about ways to describe who this character might be. Yeah, so I'm imagining uh, someone who is a little bit chaotic. Maybe they're chaotic good or maybe they're chaotic neutral, and they don't necessarily fit into that neutral good category. So that when their parent passes that blade down to them, the blade doesn't find them worthy, and then just functions as a normal longsword until the DM decides that it's time your character is allowed to have a legendary item and that you've earned it, and you really take on that neutral good aspect of yourself, and it accepts you. So I'm kind of envisioning like a, almost like a runaway teenager kind of situation. Yeah. You know, maybe this is someone who is the the chaotic lens to them being angsty and maybe kind of unspecifically angry. Right. And trying to reconcile, you know, their, their worldview against their experiences maybe. And that's what, maybe what sends them on the adventure in the first place. You know, maybe um, I hate to always go back to a tragedy in the backstory because I feel that it's a bit cliche, but that would be a good setup here is, you know, the, the Moonblade has been passed down to this character, not through a ritual or standard inheritance, but maybe, you know, the, the previous owner wielder died or was otherwise incapacitated. And, and this character said, you know, this is, this is the life that's been given to me. It's not the life I wanted. This isn't what I thought I'd be doing with my life, but they have to take it and they, they leave for whatever reason. And then the campaign that you play with this character is that character kind of growing and, and learning that you can still make some good with a path that is given to you, even if you didn't get to choose it. And some backgrounds I like for that type of character would be the charlatan, the criminal, the entertainer, or my personal favorite, the inheritor which is from the Sword Coast Adventures Guide, which isn't a very popular book and it's kind of outdated, but I do really like the Inheritor as a background. I assume it gives you some bonus for an item that's described as an heirloom. So the description of the background is you are the heir of something of great value, not mere coin or wealth, but an object that has been entrusted to you and you alone. Your inheritance might have come directly to you from a member of your family by right of birth, or it could have been left to you by a friend, a mentor, a teacher, or someone else important in your life. That really sounds like our character. Yeah, that sounds like it's it slides right in there. Another cool option would be to play a character who is a little too lawful for the Moonblade. Maybe they're a little too by the book. Maybe they're lawful good or lawful neutral. I kind of like this as the counter to the tragic backstory. Again, I, I, I like a good tragic backstory. I think it's perfectly a suitable motivation for a character, but it does tend to ring a little hollow. Uh, there's a YouTube channel whose name I honestly forget. They do really good guides kind of like this in the similar style of mechanically how to play certain classes. When I was building my fighter for this campaign that we're playing, knowing what little I did, I went ahead and watched their little video on making a fighter and they poked fun at, oh, you're playing a fighter. Let me guess, you're a grizzled white guy with a macho haircut and a tragic backstory. And they kind of poked fun at the at the cliche of, you know, the, the wounded warrior. And so I think 
the a nice antidote to that could be what you're describing here. Maybe this is a lawful character who's come into it, and they're not running from a tragic past, but maybe they are trying to uphold a legacy that they're not quite fit for. You know, maybe their their parents or mentor or whoever passed this weapon down isn't dead or incapacitated, but said, "Here, now it's your turn to go out and and make something of yourself." And so when they set out. They think, oh, well, I should go out and be a rent-a-cop everywhere I go. I should be out enforcing the letter of the law every chance I get, and they're maybe a bit overbearing. And some backgrounds that I like for this are the knight, the noble, or the courtier, or, as I said, the inheritor. Yeah, I feel like the inheritor kind of works either way. That's that's a good neutral pick. Yeah. So while we're at it and we're talking about this item, uh, let's go ahead and roll a Moonblade. Let's just see what we get. So it starts with 1d6 plus 1 charges. So I'm just going to roll a d6 here. And I got a 1! It has to happen eventually. <laughs> yep. So that gives us... So this version of our Moonblade, it was our parent before us, or whoever it was before us, and then us. And that's it. So the first rune always grants a plus 1 bonus to attack and damage rolls. So this is already a plus 1 longsword once it actually chooses us as the wielder. But for the time being, it sounds like it's just a long sword that Grandpappy made when he was a blacksmith. Yep. And then Mom kept over the fireplace, or maybe Mom carried it off to battle, and now it's ours. Yep. And then, so we roll for another one, and I rolled an 80 on the D100. Now that says that the Moonblade gains a randomly determined minor property from the Dungeon Master's Guide. So we're going to roll a D20 here. And it looks like we got a six. So the six says, um, the item whispers warnings to its bearer, granting a plus two bonus to initiative if the bearer isn't incapacitated. So here, our Moonblade is a plus one longsword that gives a plus two to initiative. That sounds a little underwhelming for a legendary item to me, but who knows what you'll get in your game. And honestly, these little bonuses, those add up quick, and especially initiative. Being able to outpace just one or two characters in the turn order yeah, uh-huh. could be the could be the fight winner. Right. You mentioned one of the backgrounds that we could choose for a chaotic character being the entertainer, and I'm kind of thinking a different spin on that. Instead of our perhaps a bit cliche, angsty adolescent or teenager who has who has inherited this weapon and and left home, gone out on an adventure and can't figure out why the blade doesn't accept them, or maybe they even don't want it to accept them. I'm trying to flip this on the other side and say, we've got a chaotic character who's inherited a weapon. What if they go out and they think they're going to join the circus? (laughs) What if they're chaotic because they're going to go be a sword swallower to make some coin? You know, what what if the blade doesn't choose them because they're misusing it, because they're not out doing anything maybe greatly useful, and that's not to disparage anybody in the entertainment business. Yeah. They're just out trying to trying to eke out a living, whereas this this blade carries some weight with it. It 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 wants to be used for something meaningful. Yeah. And you know, I love that you brought that up because when I mentioned entertainer, I was thinking somebody who was just very in love with life and liked to have a good time and liked to entertain and was too busy doing all of that to really live up to the standards of the blade. But I like this idea of somebody who takes the blade and is like, well, I am going to use this to entertain. Or I'm going to take this and while I'm on my journey, I'm going to go about entertaining. I'm going to join the circus. I'm going to do all that. I like that idea a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, how many other people have a sword that can just cover itself in green fire? That's got to be worth something. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, there's a couple of different options where you can take this character with with a chaotic build that's either, um, I don't want to say chaotic evil. Listener, if you ever think you're going to play a chaotic evil character, just don't. <laughs> I admit I've not played very many campaigns. I have never played a campaign where anybody likes chaotic evil characters. They're just a pain for the DM. They're a pain for the party. Nobody likes them. Please don't do them. I play one chaotic evil character, and I do it by making him a cleric with high wisdom. So he's not just chaotic stupid. He doesn't go around murdering everybody he wants to. He understands that there are consequences for his actions. That's the way to do it if you do it. But I agree. Try to steer away from chaotic evil characters. Yeah, so I'll concede one point. It's it's not impossible to do quote-unquote correctly, but you'll get a finger wagon from your favorite podcast co-host. <laughs> so, um, but then, you know, you can go the you can go the other side, maybe a, a chaotic lawful character or um, a chaotic neutral who is generally of better spirits. You know, chaotic doesn't always have to mean angry or sad or, or anything. You know, it doesn't have to bear negative connotations. Right. So you can, you can spin this in a positive way. Yeah. Um, you know, something else I didn't really mention was the folk hero background. I think folk hero could be a really interesting background for a chaotic character. Maybe you're chaotic because you're a vigilante. And then for the lawful character, I really like knight as a background because I like the idea of, okay, you swore an oath of knighthood and it's interfering with what the Moonblade wants of you. Like, maybe you're a little too rigidly following your values, your personal values, and you're not going along with just goodness as a virtue. Or perhaps, so I'm thinking you mentioned at the beginning that the sword attunes to an elf or half-elf of neutral alignment. Perhaps you are good aligned with a, uh, a source of power that the blade disagrees with. Maybe you have sworn your knighthood to, you know, some, some family lineage that in the olden days stood for something of righteousness or justice and now has fallen to the maybe lawful evil side. Perhaps it's gone a little corrupt and the blade wants the wielder to take a step away from it. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's real cool. Maybe the blade, no, you know, the blade has some magical intuition, you know, it, right. to impart an intelligence to the blade. It, it can tell that its wielders have gotten steadily further and further off of the path. And so it's pulling the, the player character away from lawful alignment, saying, look, this path has led people in the wrong direction. Introduce some balance. Right. And to your point, um, something that I have not mentioned about the Moonblade is it is sentient. Oh. It is a sentient, neutral, good weapon with an intelligence of 12 a wisdom of 10, and a charisma of 12. It has hearing and dark vision out to a range of 120 feet. It communicates by transmitting emotions, sending a tingling sensation through the wielder's hand when it wants to communicate something it has sensed. And that plays back into what you're saying where it can give you an initiative boost. Right. And I really like that because that gives a whole new layer to your roleplay options at the table. I'm always looking for ways to, to kind of bridge between, you know, what me, the player, is thinking or trying to figure out and what the character is trying to think or figure out. Here's a perfect way to, to make it up. You've got a sentient weapon, you know? If, if you want to make a turn based on some meta information that you, the player, have that maybe your character doesn't, your weapon warned you. Right. Maybe not explicitly, but it gave you a tip. You want to move somewhere, and maybe the character wouldn't have done that because the character can't see around the corner. The player can see, and the character's going to do it because the weapon says... I smell something around here, you know, go this way. However you however you can justify that at the table, 
knowing that now, that actually, I think, opens up a lot of opportunities for some really fun roleplay. Yeah, and speaking of roleplay and the values of the Moonblade and how you would eventually come to awaken or be worthy of the Moonblade, be chosen by the Moonblade, it does have a personality. Every Moonblade seeks the advancement of elven kind and elven ideals, which are courage, loyalty, beauty, music, and life. Uh, the weapon is bonded to the family line it's meant to serve. Once it is bonded with an owner who shares its ideals, its loyalty is absolute. If a Moonblade has a flaw, it is overconfidence. Once it has decided on an owner, it believes that only that person should wield it, even if the o owner falls short of elven ideals. So that is really where this comes down to. It has chosen you, but you are not worthy yet, so it is functioning as a normal longsword. And it's going to remain with you until it finds you worthy. Now, here's an idea that that just gave me, and let me know what you think about this. What if you, as the player of this Moonblade-wielding elf or half-elf, nominate someone at the table to play the blade? Oh, that would be really cool. What if you nominate another player to act as that blade's intelligence. Now, the obvious choice would be the DM, right? You, Because the DM knows the most about what's going on. If the blade is sentient, I I would take the safe bet and say, I'm going to let the DM tell me what the blade is, is doing or saying. But I think you could also have some fun with this and just pick another player character. Like, hey, I want you to help make up what my sword is telling me. Yeah. And that kind of cohesion across the table, I think, is, is a lot of fun. I think that's frankly kind of the major strength of Dungeons & Dragons as a whole is, is how it, it encourages that kind of collaboration. Yeah, for sure. So there's some ideas for you. If you're on the market for an elf or a half-elf character, or you think it would be fun to play someone who flits around the battlefield stabbing things in the back, here's a great option for you. And I think it offers a lot of really fun roleplay opportunities. So TJ, do you have any closing remarks for the listener? Yeah, uh, I hope you like the build. And if you end up playing a character like this, I would love to hear about it. Yes, by all means, write into us. Tell us about your adventures, your own character ideas. We will happily steal them and report them on the show as our own. <laughs> I'll make sure that our contact info is in the closing copy in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Character Sheet. We hope this episode has inspired you to create and play someone fun. This show's music was created and provided by Literally Real. Find their work on youtube.com slash at literally real. Contact us at btcs.hosts at gmail.com with your questions and comments. Join us again next episode for more Legends in the Making. did it again i didn't think of a way to i didn't think of a way to close the conversation out probably me just making a funny noise sorry got this